Welcome back for part two of the Joseph Westbecker story. I'll give you a little recap from part one. So we talked about Joe Westbecker, his work life at Standard Gravure. We talked about the shooting and we talked about the development of Prozac and Eli Lilly. And we mentioned Westbecker's medical history. And so at the end of part one, the survivors of the shooting and the family members of the deceased had decided to file a lawsuit against pretty much everyone involved. Um, and so Eli Lilly was lawyering up, and it was a big deal when this was announced. Um, mass shootings in the workplace just didn't happen at the time, and for it to happen in little old Louisville was a very big deal. And so the public, people were just coming up with their own theories about Wes Becker and his life and the case. And so for part two, I'd like to talk about Wes Becker's life, starting all the way at his birth up until the few years before uh, the shooting. Joseph Westbecker was born on April 24, 1942, to Martha and Tommy Westbecker. A year prior, when she was 15, Martha had married uh, Tommy, who was a former Golden Gloves boxer. And all we really know about Tommy's family was that they were Catholic, and Tommy's mother had a history of depression. When Joe Westbecker was just a year old, his father, Tommy, fell to his death while working on the roof of the Tower of St. James Catholic Church on Bardstown Road, and there were rumors that it was suicide. Um, and people said that Martha showed no emotion when he died, that she was just sort of blank. So she moved with Joe into her parents' house, where nine of her siblings still lived, so a very full house, and during the day... Joe would stay with his grandmother while Martha went to secretarial school. Before Joe turned two, his 38-year-old maternal grandfather was killed in the freight yards of Louisville when his coat got caught in the wheels of a passing railroad car, which is just horrible. And so already a lot of tragedy before he's even old enough to understand it. So the entire family picked up and moved to South 22nd Street and Joe's grandmother, Nancy, was now supporting all those kids and grandkid on her own, working as a seamstress for St. Joseph's Hospital and also working out of her home as a dressmaker. So Joe was mostly looked after by Martha's siblings, and there were rumors that his uncle John would frequently whip him, although John denies that. Uh, when Joe was five, he and his mother went back to Springfield for a while to live with Joe's great-grandmother, Cora, and uh, she needed help because she had severe dementia. And uh, this, this little anecdotal part of his life becomes relevant because while they were in Springfield, Joe shot his mother in the leg with an air gun. They were back in Louisville on Duker Avenue by 1948. Her... Uh, her mother-in-law, Muriel Westbecker, so Tommy's mother, moved in with, in with them during the day to watch Joe. And um, well, I guess she was with them full-time for six months um, until Muriel had to be taken away and put in, quote, some kind of home. Um, she had made multiple suicide attempts in the past, and 
Westbecker had told Brenda, his second wife, that he had watched his grandmother screaming as she was dragged out of the house when he was six by mental institution attendants. And that was the last time he ever saw his dad's mother. So not the happiest of childhoods so far, and it really only continues downhill. Joe and his mother Martha moved back in with her mom, Nancy, now on Pope Street, and it was still really crowded. Um, His uncle John was living in the basement with his new wife. The eight other siblings were still all living there, and there was some random immigrant from Peru living with them as well. Martha, his mom, was working a pretty bad job at the Philip Morris Cigarette Factory, and she hated it. And she became so depressed that she went into a psych, uh, into a psychiatrist, and she eventually ended up at Our Lady of Peace for a while. Meanwhile, Joe was attending St. Francis Roman Catholic School, and he was not doing well. He was a troublemaker, he got bad grades, he fought, and a lot of times he just didn't go to school at all. When he was nine, he was moved to St. George School, and the family had moved again to, um, what's described as a scruffier part of town at 18th and Hill. Um, He got in so much trouble at the new school that his teachers recommended he be put in an orphanage. Um, His grandmother said absolutely not, but Martha said okay. And so he was sent to St. Thomas's Orphanage in the East End. Um, And he was only 10 at this point. This was 1952. Uh, His grandmother, Nancy, would walk and take the bus every weekend to pick him up so that he could spend weekends at home. And he stayed in the orphanage for a year, until he was 11, when he was back with his mother, this time in an apartment on West Bowling Street. Um, And apparently at this point, Nancy was really putting a lot of pressure on Martha about how she was not doing a good job raising Joe, and she was a bad mother, and... Apparently, this led to Martha attempting suicide by putting rat poison in her coffee. And it just so happened that a door-to-door salesman showed up right as she was about to drink the poisoned coffee, and he was able to talk her out of it, which is just, that's a crazy story all on its own. Um, But again, just so much depression and and so much mental illness, and it's, it's so sad. Um... And then things are kind of hazy in Joe's biography until he turns 14. And he was remembered at that age as being a, quote, cool guy who dressed well and acted like a protector. So he would keep his friends from getting picked on. He bought his first car at 16. He started hanging out at Gus's Billiards on 18th Street. And his friends said he always had money. He always drove fast and sometimes dangerously with his lights off on the wrong side of the street in the middle of the night, just because he could for the thrill of it, I guess. Um, His friends also recalled that he had kind of a strange relationship with his mother, um, that he didn't like a lot of people, and that it was hard for him to make friends, which is, I mean, kind of a change from just a few years earlier. Uh, But people still said he was always very well-dressed and that his car was always immaculate, but that he always looked sad. (music) 
Anyone from Louisville or the surrounding area knows that we identify ourselves by the high school that we went to. Um, so uh, high schools are very important in Louisville. And as soon as you find out where someone went to high school, there's like two degrees of separation from you, I swear. Um, but in this case, I'm embarrassed to say I, I've not heard of this high school. I don't think it's a school anymore. But the first high school Joe went to was Flagget High, or maybe Flaget. It's F-L-A-G-E-T. Uh, write in and tell me, because I don't know. Um, but it didn't really matter, because he dropped out pretty quickly. And then he went to um, Parkland Junior High and withdrew after five days. And then he started getting arrested, uh, mostly for disorderly conduct and for fighting. He would carry this starter gun in his car, um, and he'd point it at people and shoot it to scare them, which is so not cool. And uh, if anyone doesn't know what a starter gun is, it's like that little gun that shoots blanks that people use like at swim meets or starting lines. Um, so this starter gun, uh, I need to give a little warning here. Listener discretion. This next part gets rough, um, and it does talk about sexual assault and rape. So if that's uncomfortable for you, just skip ahead a little bit. So Joe was brought into juvenile court in 1958 for holding that starter gun on two 15-year-old girls while two other boys raped them. I don't understand how he didn't end up in prison for a long time for this, um, but he did go to jail for a little while. He and this other guy that were brought in, um, they were held at the old jailhouse on Liberty Street, and they were being held with adult federal prisoners. And the guy that was held there with him, uh, that was brought in with him, he remembered that they were threatened. Uh, these, these adult prisoners were threatening to molest them, okay, to sexually assault them. And he remembered that Joe was so miserable at this point, just in his life and, you know, being in jail at the time, that he was talking a lot about committing suicide by cutting an artery in his leg. So, pretty safe to say that was a low point in Joe's younger years. After that incident, when he was 17, he met Sue White, who was a student at Shawnee High School. He had moved in permanently with his grandmother, Nancy, and Sue said that he had just calmed down quite a bit and that he was actually witty and fun to be with. In 1960, when he turned 18, he went to work he saved money. He traded in his red convertible for a sensible Volkswagen. And so a year after that, he and Sue White got married in St. George Catholic Church. And for a while after that, things seemed to be smooth sailing. In 1963, Sue gave birth to their first son, Joseph Kevin, and their second son, James, was born four years later. Sue and Joe went dancing with friends, took trips to Florida, Joe got promotions at work. He won awards. Uh, coworkers said he was proud of his status at his job. They also said he was a serious guy, a perfectionist, and a saver. He was very concerned about his kids going to college, so he worked a ton of overtime. Interestingly, they also remembered that he washed his hands all the time, like 15 times during an eight-hour shift. In 1966, they bought their first home <laughs> in Southwest Louisville for $10,200. Are you kidding me? Ugh, 
$10,000 for a house. <sighs> the good old days. Um, and then 1971 comes around, and Joe goes to work at Standard Gravure. His co-workers from those early years remembered him as hardworking, witty, and easygoing. They would tease him for not drinking very much when they'd go out after work. Um, but things were still good. They sold their first house, they made a $7,000 profit, and they bought a bigger house two miles north on Devonshire Drive for $25,000. He joined the St. Clement's Catholic Church, and their sons were enrolled in Catholic school. All this time, he was working a ton of overtime. I mean, as much as they would let him work. And you could tell it was starting to wear on him. He started fighting with his neighbors, and his attitude just towards everything started to change. And then there was this incident, and it sounds like something out of like the 50s, not the 70s. His son James got in a fight with a kid at school, and after school, Joe drove his sons, James and Kevin, over to this kid's house, and he had Kevin hold the boy down while James hit him, while Joe watched. That's not good parenting. Now, his relationship with his sons was starting to deteriorate. They hated that he worked so much overtime. They couldn't understand that it was like for them, you know? And he told them, he was like, look, I don't have the skills or education to do a higher paying job, so I have to do this. Um, and this is when he started complaining to his wife about that folder job. He said, you know, this really makes me nervous. My supervisors are really hard on me. Um, so work wasn't going great. Home life was starting to have its flaws. And then in 1977, when his son James was 10, he exposed himself to a female visitor at their house. And Joe and Sue refused to believe that there was anything wrong at first. Until, and this is kind of weird actually, um, a neighbor took a photograph of James, uh, who was naked, exposing himself to her for proof. Which, you know, that's tough, because at 10, he's still a young kid, you know, and I could see, I mean, I'm not a parent, and I, I haven't read the parenting books, but I could see how you could go, well, he, that 10 is so young, you know, he doesn't know better. The problem is, it continued to a later age. Um, but even the early signs of this behavior caused tension in the household. Joe and Sue started fighting over what to do about this issue with James. Joe actually wanted him to see a psychiatrist, and Sue didn't. Um, and then it was also around this time that Sue told Joe that she wanted to go back to work. She didn't want to be a housewife anymore. But Joe responded by telling her, basically, that a woman's place is in the home and that he would leave her if she took a job. Well, she took a job. And Joe was true to his word. He moved out in June of 78 to an apartment two miles away from their house. Sue blamed the breakup on him working all the time and being too worried about money. He was working triple overtime and making up to 50 grand a year. And so basically, I think she was just saying, you know, if you weren't so concerned about money, you could back off a little bit. I could take up a little part-time and everybody would be happy. 
but I, I think there was a lot of ego stuff at play here, and I just don't think Joe's ego could have handled that. I really don't. Um, interestingly, later, their son James told a social worker that he thinks they broke up because her mom's parents were alcoholics, and Sue was stealing money from Joe to buy her parents liquor, and he said that they would come over and ruin every holiday or get together with their drunkenness. Um, regardless, Sue and Joe got back together briefly in 1979, uh, but by 1980 they were on the outs again, and Joe had started dating other women. Uh, co-workers said he had lots of girlfriends. In fact, they said he grew obsessed with sex, and he would come in and tell them all the details about his latest sexual conquest, which, as was mentioned in the top of episode one, earned him the nickname Sex Becker. Uh, this also happened to be the time he stopped going to church. Employees testified that uh, around that same time, in the early 1980s, conditions at Standard Gravure became downright intolerable. Um, and the job of folder operator got tougher. And like we mentioned, this was Joe's job because he was good at it. And co-workers remember that his superiors were really verbally abusive towards him uh, while he was there doing their toughest job for them. And again, like we mentioned in part one, this is when people started bringing their guns to work and things just got kind of rough. Um, and co-workers said that Joe started talking about guns a lot, um, especially during breaks. They would sit down and whenever he wasn't complaining about his ex-wife, Sue, he was talking about guns. Um, and then he started going to Parents Without Partners, which is where he met Brenda Beasley, his future second ex-wife. So Joe had bought himself a house. And uh, for a while, Brenda and her two daughters moved in. Uh, the, James also lived there part-time. Not so much Kevin, the other brother. Uh, he was having a really hard time with Kevin. Kevin was refusing to finish high school, and Joe was so about his kids going to college that this really broke his heart. Um, but in August of 81, Joe married Brenda, and uh, they were happy for about a minute. Uh, in the spring of 82, Joe's son was arrested at the age of 14 for public exposure multiple times. Once, seven times on a single day. I don't even know how that happens. So Joe planned to have him come live with he and Brenda full time with her two daughters living there. And Brenda's ex-husband flipped out and I, I can't say I blame him. Um, so this really turns into a mess. Um, it's also straining Joe's relationship with his first wife, Sue. Um, eventually, things got really heated between them. Uh, Joe sued Sue for slander and actually won an out-of-court settlement. Um, this all got expensive, too. So he had to send James to the Boys Haven Boarding School. Um, he had to send him to Norton Hospital for psychiatric care. So he was spending all this money that he'd worked so hard to try to save for their futures. And, you know, on top of that, he was just really hurt about what was happening with his son. You know, that's a tough thing for a parent to go through with their child. Um, 
Now I'm about to discuss sexual assault again. So again, if that's an uncomfortable topic for you, just skip ahead a little bit. So he goes to the boys, uh, James, the son. He goes to the boys' haven. He goes to Norton for some psych care. He gets out of treatment and he relapses within a few days. So he gets home and he's living with Joe and he exposes himself to the girls next door and chases them down the street while masturbating. So Brenda's ex-husband is like, oh no, absolutely not. He files for custody, he wins, Brenda loses her daughters. He had even told, or Brenda had even told her ex-husband that she had been sleeping in a room with her two daughters with the doors locked because of her fear of living with James. That's that's really a, a, a bad situation. So after that, James was committed to Our Lady of Peace. So just to recap here, Joe's mom has been to Olap, Joe has been to Olap, and now James is is being committed to Olap, which is Our Lady of Peace, sorry. And he's found to have depressive neurosis and suicidal ideation. And he told his doctors that he felt the root of his troubles was his father's domineering attitude and the years of conflict between his parents that he had to witness growing up, which sounds reasonable. Um, So this is going on in his home life. Meanwhile, Joe was trying to smooth things out at work. So he met with a social worker at the company in 1983 But after a few meetings, he realized that everything he was telling the social worker was not confidential and was actually being used against him. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. By the spring of 1984, Brenda said that Joe Westbecker was so burnt out in every aspect of his life. One night she found him running up and down the street, sobbing hysterically, and the neighbors told her that he'd been at it for two hours. She called the MS, but he refused to go anywhere with them. Days later, he overdosed on Norpramin and had to have his stomach pumped, and a few days after that, he was found trying to kill himself with carbon monoxide poisoning from his car. So on April 16, 1984, he was committed to Our Lady of Peace and diagnosed with major affective illness, depression, recurrent type. Morton Leventhal, great name, was the hospital's clinical psychologist, and here's what he had to say about Joe Westbecker. He, quote, perceives the world as threatening and harbors a great deal of anger toward what they have done to him. He said Joe had a borderline personality with the potential for self-destructive behavior. He was discharged after a week, given a prescription for a new antidepressant, and a month later, Brenda moved out. And they didn't speak for a month. And right around that same time, his first wife, Sue, was getting remarried. So it was a tough time. But Joe went back to work, 
and he begged the social worker for an easier workload, or at least for his foreman to stop making fun of him. And nothing changed. So that's the story of Joe Westbecker up until just those last couple of years before the shooting, but I do want to get back into the case before we talk about those last couple of years, uh, which we already sort of glossed over, but we're going to go through them in a little more detail. But back to the case, uh, remember Ed Stover was the head of the legal team for Eli Lilly. And he was working on the discovery phase, and he knew that these anecdotal stories from Joe's life were going to work in Eli Lilly's favor. There was a significant history of mental illness in the family, and Stouffer felt that Wes Becker had been planning that shooting for a long time, years, long before the Prozac. So that's what was going on on Lilly's side. Now, the plaintiffs were still kind of getting their legal team together. So uh, there was a man named Leonard Ring who met with another personal injury lawyer, Paul Smith, in May of 1991, so pretty early on. Um, And Paul Smith was already working other cases against Prozac. He was working in Texas. And so Smith went on to be lead counsel for multi-district Prozac litigation while they decided that Ring would lead up the West Becker case specifically. And so Leonard Ring brought on this other uh, young lawyer, Nancy Zettler, who was fresh out of law school. And just to give you an idea of what they were up against, um, they asked they asked Eli Lilly to provide them with whatever documents would be, you know, would pertain to the case. And Eli Lilly told them they didn't have any documents in their computer at all that they could give them. And so um, Ring and Zettler personally went to the headquarters in Indianapolis where they found more than 4 million pages of documents and hard copy that they could take. So they had a tough road ahead dealing with this total lack of cooperation from Lilly. Now fast forward to February of 1994, just a month before the trial was supposed to start, Paul Smith got a call from Nancy Zettler informing him that Leonard Ring was in a coma and he died just a few days after that. So Zettler hurried down to the Jefferson Circuit Court to request a postponement and there was a lot of back and forth about who would take over the case. And so Paul Smith is looking back over everything. He looks over Dr. Coleman's notes, Um, He looks over the coroner's report, and he accepts the invitation to be the trial lawyer on a no-win, no-fee basis. And he estimated that the damages would range between $150 and $500 million if they won. And for context, Eli Lilly's projected sales for 1995 were climbing to $6.5 billion, 1.7 1.7 of that coming from Prozac alone. Zettler and Smith spent the spring of 94 traveling across the country, meeting with scientists, learning about Prozac research and development, and Smith was looking for expert witnesses to testify that Prozac could be a potentially harmful substance. And Smith would later say that there were over 300 people that could have testified but that Lily had already retained most of them. And Lily said, no, 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 it's not that. 
It's just that none of those people would testify for you because that's not, that's not the truth. It's not harmful. So the trial was now set for mid-September. And at that point, uh, Judge Potter had ruled that no other party had a case to answer to at that time. So it just became these plaintiffs versus Eli Lilly. Standard Gravure, Dr. Coleman, the security company, company were all off the hook for the time being which was fine by Paul Smith, since obviously the most lucrative party to go after was the drug company. That's going to do it for part two of the Joseph Westbecker story. In part three, we'll talk about the trial. And I mean, it really is interesting. It does not end the way that you think it would. It does not end the way that you want it to. Um, so if you're not familiar with how this story ends, uh, you'll definitely want to stay tuned. Uh, as always, thank you all for listening. If I need to make a correction, I'm sure I said some names and things wrong. Uh, you can send me an email, kyhistoryhaunts at gmail.com. Also, I just wanted to mention the website again. Um, the Lakeland Asylum piece, uh, episode came with a lot of really cool pictures there are a lot of great pictures of that place so if you're if you're a more visual person uh check out kyhistoryhaunts.com too all right guys thanks and i'll see you next time